Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We are seeing the repo rate that got a lot of people all bent out of shape a couple days ago come down further as the New York Fed engages in a third day of its repo facility trying to inject calm into this basic plumbing of the financial system. Here joining us, Tom Kennedy, Global Head of Macro and Fixed Income Strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Tom, I'm wondering if we could start talking about the takeaways from this mm. whole episode. Yep. Does this mean that the Federal Reserve allowed its balance sheet to just get too small as it allowed it to shrink uh, with quantitative tightening? Yes. Short okay. answer is yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, why? Why? Yeah. The amount of liquidity that a, a very dynamic U.S. economy needs is impossible to know in exact real time. You can see it and see indicators of a certain amount of excess reserves, which I'm going to call liquidity for the sake of this discussion, um, that you need for the economy to function. The analogy is that I use is in my own personal life. When I was in college, didn't have a job, wasn't really spending much, my checking account could have relatively small balance in it. It was very small, trust me. <laughs> Fast forward, you have a family, you have a job, you have debt, you have more liability needs, and you need to have more cash in your checking, checking account. Same analogy can be applied to the US economy. This economy has grown remarkably over the last 10 years, and the repo market signals this week are telling us about 1.3 trillion in reserves is just not enough liquidity. And I, I'm fully aware of the, the, the technical issues of the supply and demand that happened over the last couple of weeks. But I think we can, for, for most people out there, smooth through that and say, there's just not enough liquidity in the system, despite the popular belief that liquidity is a wash in the system. And repo markets this, this week have been telling us that. The Fed comes out with temporary operations. They're just putting cash and liquidity into the system. They, this is a temporary fix for a permanent problem. They are going to need eventually to have the, the balance sheet continue to expand. That's not QE. That's just to make sure there's enough liquidity in the system. Shouldn't be inflationary. Well, um, if it's not QE, how do they do it? Yeah, the good point, Lisa. The, the mechanics are the same, but the objective and the end goal are different. In a place where you need to make sure there's enough liquidity, you're injecting just enough to make sure markets function. Shouldn't be inflationary because you're just making sure your checking account, for the sake of this example, has enough to meet your demands. QE is buy even more bonds that are, than are necessary for liquidity, 
in the in the attempt to really pull yields lower and stimulate inflation. Different objective, same mechanical um, implementation that needs to be done. What if the Fed decides, doesn't agree with you, and decides, ah, this is just a short-term blip. We don't need to do really anything. We don't have to grow this balance sheet much. Repo rates will continue to remain high. And I mean, this week, overnight repo traded north of 9% for a period of time. It's quite simple to realize that if you're receiving a yield on an instrument that you own, let's just say it's a 10-year treasury that holds a coupon of 2%, and to finance that security, you're at 9%, obviously that's a negative carry position and can't go on for very long. So levered players in a system, if the Fed doesn't address this, will not be able to function. So the Fed currently has $1.3 trillion of non-treasury or mortgage-backed securities debt that is liquidity for this purpose, correct? It's reserves? The excess reserves excess on, the liability reserves. Resi- on the liability side is about $1.3 trillion. $1.3 trillion. How much should it be? I don't know. I don't think that they know either. I think that all they're realizing is it's not enough right now. And this is, this is kind of the, this is where the art of central banking meets what I think is perceived science. Um, the economy is so dynamic. They don't know the dot on this dot on this day, we need 1.4 trillion. They don't know. So they have to feel it a little bit. And the repo market is, is sending them a signal. They don't have enough. Okay. So the consequences are are pretty dire, right? That we could end up with a liquidity crunch, even a a downturn or some sort of seizure, you know, levered players could get blown out of the water, uh, could pull back. This is private debt, private equity, you know, all sorts of, uh, levered currency funds. Um, looking at that, Right. I'm wondering on the flip side, the Federal Reserve comes out, starts to buy a lot more bonds Says mm. we're just trying to manage the situation. Yeah. How do they distinguish that from trying to ease financial conditions? Yeah, the communication. There's a communication challenge with this. This hasn't been a part of their toolkit for 10 years. They over the next six to eight weeks ahead of the October meeting, there's going to you're going to hear lots of education from them to distinguish the two. Uh, and that's going to be vitally important. There is no one in the United States a better position to do this than the New York Fed. They're going to do a great job doing it, um, but there's, there needs to be more education on this, and I expect them to start that as soon as possible. Did you hear anything from Chairman Powell yesterday on that issue? Yeah, I think he, I read him as saying we're going to learn a lot over the next six weeks as they try to feel where the level of excess reserves is required. Um, and I also interpreted him as they're going to do a lot of work on how much the balance sheet needs to grow. And my expectation out of yesterday is that they're going to come up with an announcement in October about how to start expanding the balance sheet again to meet these liquidity needs, just not, real, not do QE. Just real quick, given your experience at the New York Fed, do you think that they will get it right eventually, or do you think that this will remain a real problem? 100% confident they're going to get it right. The, the team there can do it. Uh, I think the art of doing this is, is what's important here. They had to feel where the stress points were. I think it caught them by surprise, quite candidly. This came a lot sooner than, than myself, than I thought, than I think they thought as well. And Powell more or less admitted that yesterday, um, but they're going to fix it. And these temporary market operations are vital and they are doing them. But again, it's a temporary fix. They need the permanent fix uh, and they'll give it to us. Tom Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us. Tom Kennedy's global head of macro and fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank, educating us and our listeners on the repo market. Uh, clearly a challenge ahead for uh, the Federal Reserve to manage that part of the uh, yield curve.
As people doubt whether Saudi Arabia really will be able to bring all their production back online all that soon, the question is, how much higher will it go? Joining us now, we are so pleased to say Bob Ryan, chief strategist, focused on commodity and energy strategy for BCA Research. Bob, where do you think the price of oil is going? I'm looking at crude on the NYMEX right now uh, at $58.63 a barrel. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Um, That's tough to say. Um, You know, we're um, right now trying to figure out um, how fast storage is going to be drawn while Saudi is uh, repairing uh, opcake mostly. We did some scenario analysis uh, just at the margin, not saying this is where um, prices are going to go, but, you know, the marginal impact of um, delays in bringing these facilities back online um, could push you, you know, through $80 uh, in in the uh, first half of next year. So um, that's not to say it will happen. Um, What uh, most likely happens is commercial inventory keeps drawing down. And at a certain point, if, you know, we see the uh, forward curves in crude oil, the Brent and the WTI start to really backwardate, um, that'll be a signal or an indication that um, SPR barrels are probably going to be needed. Um, and, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the DOE in the U.S. is keeping track of that, um, you know, what's happening to the evolution of the curve. You know, if I'm looking at Brent right now, it looks like um, the curve is steepening just a little bit as the market works through this. So I think that's the big thing to start uh, keeping track of uh, as we go to the end of September when, you know, the Aramco folks have been saying that, um, you know, the repair should be mostly done. You know, market's waiting and uh, waiting to see what happens. But my expectation is we do see storage start to draw, prices move up backwardation uh, steepens. So, Bob, what is what do you think the market is kind of discounting today about maybe an escalation even of tensions between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia and perhaps the U.S.? I know it's you know almost impossible to handicap, but do you think the market is expecting this thing to get maybe even a little bit worse? Uh, it could. Um, you know, our, our assumption is, is that uh, the Trump administration is going to more than likely retaliate in some form uh, militarily, but not in a way that escalates this to a full-out, you know, war uh, between the U.S. and Iran or between the U.S. and its GCC allies and Iran. Um, more than likely, um, you know, it's it's going to be a message. It, it's not going to be, um, you know, a declaration of war. Um, it, it's interesting also, the Iranian foreign minister, I, I saw a headline going across, uh, was saying that any attack on Iran itself would be or would result in all-out war. So that, uh, you know, both sides are, are, you know, as we said in our morning meeting this morning, um, you know, there's there's a lot of loud barking on both sides, but um, we don't think it escalates uh, to that extent. But you don't know. I mean, the, the, the big thing uh, with these kinds of confrontations is that, um, you know, they could spin out. You know, you could have inadvertent, uh, uh, you know, consequences uh, that quickly get out of control. And, that, and, and the hard thing is containing it, uh, you know, once you set something in motion. Well, so let's talk about sort of the asymmetric risks associated with a potential conflict uh, over the escalation that we've seen with Iran. 
how high could oil prices go versus decline if there is no conflict, if it gets resolved, if Saudi Arabia gets their production on board and things just chug along the way they had been? Um, you know, prices would be probably fairly well contained. And then, you know, you'd, you'd go back to the OPEC plus or what we call OPEC 2.0. Um, managing production, trying to you know get control of the storage levels globally. Um, the asymmetry is if you do get something, um, you know, some kinetic uh, activity between uh, you know the U.S. and Iran, just as an example, that threatens the Hor- Strait of Hormuz, then markets would really start to price in you know large price moves to the upside. Um, if we uh, see this thing resolved and, you know, we go back to status quo ante, as it were, um, you know, we probably come back down to, you know, holding around 65 this year, you know, maybe into the 70s next year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of it depends on on what happens to the um, production management of OPEC plus and the uh, impact on demand um, as, as we move forward. High prices will all else equal, uh, more than likely start destroying demand, particularly if you get a, a dollar rally on the back of that. You know, everybody f- uh, flies to safe havens, the U.S. dollar being one of them. That'll effectively raise the local currency cost of oil around the world outside the U.S., and um, you'll get demand destruction on the back of that. So you'll have high absolute prices in U.S. dollars, but you will also have high local currency prices. And that will start to erode demand. And and the higher it goes, the more significant that erosion will become. So, Bob, before the attacks on the Saudi facility, I think the narrative in the the oil market was people really focusing on demand and, and what a slowing global economy means for oil, putting some pressure on on crude, what does your demand model say? You know, you know, x out some of the concerns in the Middle East. Yeah, uh, if if we just you know take our base case, you know, exactly as you say, x that out. Um, you know, our expectation is that demand this year grows on average like 1.2 million barrels a day. So we're a little above the uh, IEA, and and I think the EIA is probably at about 1 million a day. Next year we're at 1.4, 1.5 all else equal, right? You know, we, we get this massive fiscal and uh, monetary stimulus globally. Um, you know, it revives demand. It starts to, it, it not starts to, it, it undoes a lot of the um, uh, tightness and financial conditions that were brought on by the Fed tightening cycle last year, as well as the deleveraging campaign in China, which took a lot of liquidity from the system. So those two things were just starting to show up or had started to show up, you know, in the second half of last year, first half of this year, that should be undone with all that stimulus coming into the system. So we would be much more uh, bullish uh, demand growth next year as all that stimulus comes in. Got it. But, you know, we are in uncertain territory here. Yep. Very good. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Bob Bryan, Chief Strategist, Commodity and Energy Strategy for BCA Research, giving us his thoughts on the global uh, oil market. Obviously, a tremendous amount of volatility experienced over the last uh, week or so, given the attack on the Saudi uh, facility and what that means for the supply side of the equation. Uh 
Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. So to get some more data there, we welcome our next guest, Adaman Azilder, Senior Director, Economics and Global Research Chair at the Conference Board. Uh, Adaman, he joined us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. What is your data telling you? I know you reported the data for August. Good morning. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. And um, the LEI for uh, August just came out. And uh, as uh, your viewers, uh, listeners know, that um, the uh, LEI is a forward-looking gauge of the economy, and in August, it remained unchanged. So what's the implication? I mean, is that good, bad, or just basically just don't even think about it now? So uh, the LEI trends have been kind of flattening, um, and they're still rising around the same level as earlier in the year, but not as fast as we had seen in the previous years. So that just tells me that we are settling into a, a slower growth economy, uh, kind of going back to the long-term trend. What is the long-term trend kind of from your perspective? So at the conference board, we estimate that long-term trend to be right around 2% growth. Okay, so right now, as, I, as we look at the economy, we look at all the data that's coming out, and even the, some of the micro data we see from companies and earnings and so on and so forth, the U.S. economy seems to be a story of, okay, manufacturing, not so good, and maybe even worrisome, not so good, but the consumer is still very strong. Is that kind of what your data is showing you? That's essentially what we see in the leading indicators, too. When you look at the households and uh, consumers, they're kind of holding up the economy. But when you look at uh, manufacturing, new orders in manufacturing, uh, especially for capital goods, there's a lot more weakness that's kind of holding the index down. One thing that's kind of interesting, we keep getting a positive reads on housing data today. Another one uh, with used sales, uh, used home sales uh, coming in stronger than expected. And as one part of the leading economic indicator, uh, that is one area that's that was sort of a big positive, right? A big contributor. Yeah, housing permits made a positive contribution to the index, and that is good news for the economy because housing overall is a leading uh, sector for the overall U.S. economy. But jobless claims was a negative contributor. And I want you to talk about that since we do talk about the consumer kind of holding up the entire expansion here. Is that sort of a warning sign? Right. So the consumer obviously is uh, supported by the uh, good jobs growth, and uh, we're, we would be worried if that's going to be changing. And the leading indicators for employment have started to soften, and unemployment claims is one of those. Uh, so it's not really surprising to see some softening in the labor market, um, but uh, employment is still growing, and that's supporting uh, jobs, income, and consumer spending. When do you, when does your data, your leading economic indicator start flashing a red sign to you when you see multiple months of declines? Is it, is what's kind of the, the big 
flashpoint for your indicator. Exactly. So what I'm looking for in the leading indicators is where, wh whether it's uh, falling consistently over several months. It's a gauge of future economic activity that's six to nine months ahead. And the peak in the leading index uh, forms on average about 12 months ahead of the economy turning down. So that is the leading relationship. And uh, so far, we're not really seeing that sort of a peak forming in the uh, leading indicators. So I'm looking right now, and uh, Manny Roman, the CEO of PIMCO, uh, said that he expects U.S. growth to hover slightly above 1% for the first half of 2020, which is substantially lower than it is currently. Do you think that's plausible based on these indicators? So the indicators are really consistent with uh, the economy slowing um, just to around 2%. So that's a little more pessimistic than what we're seeing in sort of the uh, fundamentals of the economy. Uh, a lot of people are nervous about the future because they look at interest rates, yield spreads, but that's really only one part of the leading indicators, uh, and it's not really widespread uh, across other components. So it's perhaps a little bit more pessimistic than what the leading economic indicators uh, may show. Adaman Azildarim, thank you so much for being with us. Senior Director of Economics and Global Research uh, at the Conference Board, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape. Looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.